Part Four, Chapter Seven of The Gambler. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. The Gambler by Catherine Cecil Thurston. Chapter Seven. The remaining hours of that night passed like a dream for Clodagh. Condemn herself as she might for the weakness, there was no subduing the tumultuous excitement kindled by the thought that she was to see Gore again. It was not to be denied that time, intervening incidents, and a subconscious personal desire had blunted the first resentment that Lady Frances Hope's disclosures had engendered. In the reckless pursuit of excitement that had marked the past three months she had imagined him banished from her mind, but now, at the knowledge of his promised advent, she realized that it had only been an imagination, that despite everything his place in her mind had never been usurped. When at last she fell asleep long after midnight her thoughts were strange, exciting, almost happy, and when next morning the entrance of Simonetta roused her to consciousness it was with something like hopefulness and anticipation that she turned her eyes to the open window through which the clear country sunlight was breaking between the gay shins curtains. With a quick eager wakefulness she sat up in bed and pushed back her loosened hair. A feeling long forgotten was stirring in her heart. The vague delicious hope of future things that had been wont to thrill her long ago when she read her father's horses along the strand at Orristown in the untarnished dawn of an Irish day. During the process of dressing this sense of anticipation grew, and with it came a spontaneous wish for action. She became imbued with the same desire for light and air and freedom that had possessed her on the day in Florence when she had gazed out upon the distant hills from the window of the villa. Something of her eager energy was shining in her eyes as she descended the stairs and entered the sunny morning-room where breakfast was always served when the party at Tufnell was small. Lady Diana and her husband were already in the room, glancing through their morning letters, the former wearing a plain linen dress, the latter an old shooting-suit that had seen much service. At the moment that she opened the door Lady Diana was reading aloud from the letter in her hand while George Tufnell was laughing with enormous amusement. They made a very homely, pleasant picture of contented, successful married life. Seeing their guest they both came forward cordially, and George Tufnell smiled warm-heartedly as he took her hand. "'Well, Mrs. Milbank, and what is Tufnell like in daylight? Isn't it worth a hundred Londons? Haven't you got an appetite for breakfast?' Lady Diana laughed as she led Clodagh to the table. "'George is a horrible egotist,' she said cheerfully. He thinks the only things in the world worthy of consideration are Tufnell and the Tufnells. Clodagh smiled as she took her seat. He is very much justified, she said softly. Then she glanced round the table. But where's Lady Frances? Her hostess smiled. Breakfasting in bed. I knocked at her door at seven o'clock to ask whether she would care for a canter before breakfast or whether she would like to walk over to the home farm with George but she literally drove me away. She's out of sorts today. Poor Francis. Oh, I am sorry. Clodagh looked distressed. Just today, when everybody's coming. George Tufnell turned to her with his habitual bluff kindliness. Don't trouble Mrs. Milbank, he said. She'll be all right by the afternoon. It's the mornings that society plays the deuce with. Look at Dee. 
Look what a country life has done for her. Clodagh looked almost shyly at her hostess's straight shoulders and healthy, happy face. Don't make me more envious than I am, she said gently. Lady Diana has everything. With a sympathetic gesture, Lady Diana extended her hand and touched hers lightly. My dear, she said, you have no reason to repine, and Tufnell is to bring you enjoyment, not regret. What amusement can we plan for the morning, George? George Tufnell looked up from the omelette to which he was helping himself. What would Mrs. Milbank like? You may do anything you like here, Mrs. Milbank, except be unhappy. Clodagh smiled brightly. Anything? Anything in wisdom. She hesitated for a moment, looking down at her plate. Then, with a quick winning movement, she lifted her head, glancing from one of her entertainers to the other. Then give me a horse, she said quickly, and let me ride by myself till lunchtime. Lady Diana looked distressed. What, alone? she asked. But her husband laughed cheerily. Why not, if she wishes? Tufnell is Liberty Hall, Mrs. Milbank. You shall have the best horse in the stables. Lady Diana smiled indulgently. I hope we are doing right. Four hours by oneself in the saddle is rather a lonely thing. Oh, but I won't be alone, Clodagh cried. A good horse is the best company in the world. At the conclusion of breakfast she rose to go upstairs and change into her habit. As she passed her hostess she paused. Shall I run in and see Lady Frances? she asked. Lady Diana looked up at her. I think not. Francis called through the door this morning that no one was to go near her before twelve o'clock. I'd wait till then if I were you. And Clodagh nodded comprehendingly and left the room. Half an hour later she rode down a long avenue of chestnuts, mounted on a splendid bay horse of Lady Diana's, and emerged upon the road that skirted the park wall. Tufnell Place was situated in one of the richest corners of Buckinghamshire and as she drew rein for a moment outside the large gates and surveyed the surrounding country, it seemed to her that, as far as the eye could reach, the land stretched away in one great tract of prosperous, well-tilled fields and sweeping meadowland broken by high hedges and low wooded hills. The day was one to revel in, the scene one to bring complete repose and as she gathered up her reins and allowed the bay-horse to sweep down the gently sloping road into this land of plenty, she permitted the atmosphere to take full possession of her. For the moment the thought of London, of her fellow-beings, even of herself, fell away from her conscious consideration, and she dreamed, as an Irishwoman can always dream, with her eyes open and her senses alert to her horse's slightest movement, yet wrapped in a world of her own, created from the warm blue haze of summer that lay over the rich country, from the summer sun that warmed her blood, from the close instinctive comprehension of nature that no artificiality has power to eradicate. It was more than three hours later when she rode back to the gates of Tufnell, having covered many miles of country, and reveled for a long delicious stretch of time in her own musings. The air and the hot sun had warmed her face to a splendid healthy color, her lips were parted eagerly, and across her saddle she was carrying a spray of honeysuckle plucked from the tall hedgerows. Her mood was generous, pliable, brimming with high impulses. If in that moment one loving hand had been stretched forth to hers, 
one honest soul come out of the sunlight to meet her own many things might have been different but the moment came and the moment passed riding quickly up the avenue she drew rein at the hall door and at the same instant lady frances hope crossed into the wide sunny hall clodagh saw her at once and a shade of disappointment touched her face lady frances was so intensely suggestive of the world she had been trying to forget her impulses of a minute ago shrank instinctively the habit of indifference came back to her by suggestion she suddenly felt ashamed of her sunburned face and of the spray of honeysuckle but lady frances came forward to the hall door and at the same moment a groom hurried round from the stables clodagh slipped easily from her horse took her flowers from the saddle and then turned to greet her friend how are you she said i was so sorry not to have seen you this morning i have had a glorious ride lady frances did not respond to the words with her habitual smile and on closer scrutiny clodagh observed despite a very careful toilet she looked tired and annoyed you've been away an age she said irritably it's after twelve then perhaps i'd better change the coach is to be back from the station at half-past twelve no never mind diana isn't conventional you can meet the people and lunch too in your habit i want to talk to you clodagh's eyes opened it was new to find lady frances's manner either hasty or perturbed to me what about the other hesitated for a moment then looked straight at her companion about walter gore the onslaught was so sudden that clodagh had no time to guard her feelings she flushed a deep painful flush that spread over her cheeks her ears her forehead lady frances looked at her mercilessly i have been worrying so about his coming worrying so about you about me clodagh said the words consciously and uncomfortably yes i feel so much for you you who are so sensitive clodagh she laid her fingers lightly on clodagh's arm clodagh i am your best friend you believe that you-you have always been very good to me and always shall be good to you look here her voice suddenly took on the tone of seeming frankness that is the clever woman's best weapon i'm enormously fond of you enormously fond of you i should hate to see you hurt or-or she paused judiciously but who would hurt me why should i be hurt you shouldn't be of course but sometimes circumstances chances people hurt one oh my dear girl i'm unhappy at this unlucky coming of walter's it's hard it's really hard on you as the words were uttered it seemed to clodagh that a faint cold wind blew from some unseen quarter chilling the summer warmth chilling her own happiness why why hard on me she asked dear child lady frances's tone was deep and kind do you remember the night in town when you asked me to take you to the tamperlays party yes i remember you remember why i refused yes i remember but you did not know my full reason for refusing i had met walter a day or two before we had discussed you and what had sir walter gore to say of me he said oh dear child don't ask me to be too literal but i do clodagh freed her arm is it worth while i tried to keep you two apart while i could now it has become impossible but why should we be kept apart what have i done 
dear clodagh you know walter you know how entirely he disapproves 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 what right has sir walter gore to disapprove of me to criticize to speak of me her voice shook not as she herself imagined with outraged pride but with uncontrollable disappointment and pain oh i resent it she cried i resent it then suddenly she paused turning to her companion with an almost frightened gesture up the long avenue came the sound of wheels and the rapid clatter of many hoofs lady frances put out her hand again and touched clodagh's wrist here they are she said i am glad to see your courage i admire it as she had intended the sharp concise words braced her companion she stood for an instant longer in an attitude of nervous panic then suddenly she threw up her head with a touch of the boyish spirit that had marked her long ago i i am not a coward lady frances she said side by side they waited while the big yellow coach piloted by george tufnell swung round the bend of the drive and as clodagh stood there watching the great vehicle sweep round to the hall door her face became pale and her fingers closed tightly round the handle of her riding crop it was her world her world in miniature that swayed towards her while she impotently waited its approach on the box beside george tufnell sat mrs bathurst radiant in summer garments behind were deerhurst seracald gore and the middle-aged man who was unknown to her as her eyes passed from one face to another tufnell drew the horses up with great dexterity the servants sprang to the ground and lady diana came hospitably forward from the recesses of the hall the first guest to descend from the coach was seracald reaching the ground he paused for a second to brush some dust from his light flannel suit then he came forward to his hostess how do you do lady diana and lady frances he shook hands with both then he turned to clodagh with rather more impressiveness how tremendously fit you look he said before she could answer deerhurst joined them calmly taking her hand as though it were his right well circe he said below his breath we have followed clodagh turned her eyes hastily almost nervously from seracal's attentive face to the cold features of the older man i-i should feel very flattered she said lightly her eyes were on deerhurst her hand was in his but her mind was poignantly conscious of gore's figure standing close behind her of gore's voice exchanging greetings with lady diana tufnell a moment later she knew that he had turned and had seen the tableau made by the old peer seracald and herself how do you do mrs milbank it is a long time since we have met it was not until he had directly addressed her not until she had turned and met his glance that clodagh realized how deeply how peculiarly he had influenced her she drew her fingers sharply from deerhurst it is a long time she said very softly gore took her hand at the same moment deerhurst laughed his laugh of unfathomable cynical wisdom mrs milbank was the chrysalis in those old days gore he said lightly now you see the butterfly at the laugh and the tone gore's expression became cold and he released clodagh's hand so i have been told he said a little stiffly i must congratulate mrs milbank on her development he gave a slightly constrained laugh and moved back to lady diana's side deerhurst looked after him a malicious humorous look 
isn't it too lenient of the prettiest lady in london to allow a young puritan to take her to task in public he asked in his satirical voice clodagh flushed and turning as if to answer let the spray of honeysuckle slip inadvertently from between her fingers instantly both deerhurst and serocald stooped to recover it the younger man was successful and straightening himself quickly wheeled round to return it then his face fell and again deerhurst laughed without a word clodagh had left the little group and disappeared into the house End of chapter seven chapter eight at lunchtime clodagh sent word to lady diana tufnell that the long ride in the morning sun had given her a headache and that she would be glad of a few hours rest on receipt of the message her hostess was much concerned and came herself to clodagh's bedroom door to inquire whether she could be of any use to the sufferer but there she was met by simonetta who conveyed the intelligence that her mistress was asleep but in reality clodagh was not sleeping was not even lying down she was sitting in a low chair in the shadow of the drawn chintz curtains striving to solve the question of her future conduct would she remain at tufnell and face the difficulties of her position would she turn coward and run away she passed in review the incidents of the morning until by persistent contemplation of them her humiliation kindled to anger first anger against herself then anger against the world at large lastly anger against war by the time afternoon tea was brought to her the headache she had feigned had become a reality and before dinner-time arrived she had fallen into a state of miserable despondency but scarcely had this black mood taken possession of her than a new and more intolerable distress assailed her she suddenly realized the gossip to which her abrupt retirement might give rise what would the house-party think of her disappearance would not lady frances hope if no one else presume that she was suffering from wounded vanity the thought was unendurable no sooner did it present itself than she sprang from her chair in a fever of apprehension and rang hastily for simonetta ten minutes before the dinner hour she emerged from her room and passed downstairs faint daylight was still filling the house but everywhere the lamps had been lighted and the mellow double illumination gave a curious softening effect to the old raftered ceilings and panelled walls in the hall she was met by lady frances hope who paused and looked at her scrutinizingly what is the matter with you she asked with unusual brusqueness you almost look as if you had a fever your eyes are glittering clodagh laughed nervously and put one hand to her cheek nothing is the matter lady frances's lip curled slightly you should go to bed early yes early in the morning i feel i could sit up all night playing bridge again clodagh laughed this time a little recklessly why not she asked will you play to-night not here george is rather a stickler where his relations are concerned and his guests clodagh's question was quick and a little anxious oh his guests can amuse themselves as they like of course then i shall play to-night if i can find any one to play with lady frances looked over her shoulder attracted by the sound of voices well here comes rose she said press her into your service she won't refuse if you give her mr mansfeld as a partner the set she has made on that man the whole afternoon is perfectly disgraceful she turned with a smile to mrs bathurst 
"'Ah, Rose, how nice to see you, and you are just in time. We have been taking your name in vain.' Clodagh became the center of a noisy party until dinner was announced, and during the meal itself the same air of inconsequent gaiety was maintained in her regard, for she sat between Seracald and his uncle. A dozen topics were touched upon during the course of the meal, the latest sporting gossip, the latest social scandal, the latest Parisian play, all were discussed, and all laughed over the triviality of the world that has few prejudices, few responsibilities, fewer ideals. From time to time, during the easy flow of this light talk, she found herself stealing surreptitious glances down the long table to where Gore was seated between Lady Diana Tufnell and her sister. But not once did she surprise a glance from him. It seemed that he had very successfully banished her from his mind. After dinner the whole party left the dining-room together, as was the custom at Tufnell, some to play billiards, some to stroll in the gardens, others to find their way to the music-room, where Lady Diana usually gathered a little audience to listen to her singing. On this evening Clodagh was amongst the first to pass out of the dining-room, and moving into the centre of the hall she paused and looked expectantly over her shoulder. As she had anticipated, Deerhurst appeared almost at once, and came directly to her side. "'What is your pleasure?' he said. "'Bridge?' She looked up swiftly. "'Yes, Bridge,' she said quickly. "'I feel I must have excitement to-night.' He looked at her immovably. "'As you wish,' he said calmly. "'I shall ask Rose Bathurst and Mansfeld to play.' He turned away, and at the same moment Lady Diana came forward from a little group that included her husband and Gore. Coming close to Clodagh, she laid her hand kindly on her arm. "'Well, Mrs. Milbank,' she said pleasantly, "'how shall we amuse you this evening?' Clodagh turned swiftly. Her nerves felt so tense and strained that even her hostess's quiet voice set them tingling. "'Oh, I have chosen my amusement,' she said. "'I want a game of bridge.' and Lord Deerhurst has gone to make up a four. Lady Diana's expression changed, betraying a leaven of disappointment. Bridge, she repeated, do you think you are quite wise? Remember your headache. Clodagh gave a short, excited laugh. Ah, you are not a bridge player, Lady Diana. If you were, you would know that bridge is a cure for all the ills of humanity. Here comes Lord Deerhurst with two accomplices. Fancy it is the first time that I have met the rich Mr. Mansfeld. Lady Diana was silent. She looked once more at Clodagh, a rapid penetrating look that might have belonged to her sister. Then she compelled herself to smile. I hope your game will be a good one, she said graciously, and moving quietly away she rejoined her husband. Almost at the same moment Deerhurst approached, followed at some little distance by Mrs. Bathurst and Mansfeld, a South African millionaire who had recently found his way into society. "'Rose is making the running,' he remarked in a maliciously amused whisper. "'She asked me before dinner exactly what Mansfeld is worth.' "'Ah, here you are, Mansfeld,' he added aloud. "'Allow me to present you to Mrs. Milbank. "'Mrs. Milbank, will you show us the way to the card-room? "'I hear you are the spoiled child of the house.' Clodagh bowed to Mansfeld and responding at once to Deerhurst's suggestion led the way across the hall. The card-room at Tufnell was the only room in the big rambling house that had not preserved an air of old-world repose. 
here alone the artistic decorator had been allowed to encroach upon the handiwork of time and the result although comfortable and even luxurious was modern and slightly bizarre an oriental carpet a few divans and coffee stools half a dozen chairs and three or four baize-covered tables comprised the somewhat conventional furniture while the walls were covered in fabric of bright scarlet and decorated with the peculiar and extravagant frieze representing the fifty-two cards of the pack as clodagh entered an irrepressible recollection of london of the clubs the card-rooms the smoking-rooms of london where men and women idle away their lives and their money rose to her mind banishing the pictures of country peace that the last twelve hours had conjured pausing by one of the tables she looked back at her three companions let's cut for partners she cried quickly picking up an unused pack of cards see i've cut a ten mrs bathurst came languidly forward and raised a portion of the pack a three she said now mr mansfield and lord deerhurst she looked with graceful interest towards the men deerhurst cut a four then the millionaire followed with a two her face flushed with pleasure how strange she murmured do you mind having a very stupid partner mr mansfeld her large brown eyes rested on the rich man's face exactly as they had rested upon deerhurst in the days at venice observing and comprehending this by the light of recent knowledge clodagh gave a sharp amused laugh i think everyone is satisfied rose she said now about points lord deerhurst what points deerhurst bowed complacently what would you like partner our usual forty shillings a hundred or twenty shillings a hundred suggested mrs bathurst with a deprecating smile at mansfeld again clodagh laughed you are getting very modest rose do you remember the last time we were opponents at bridge but i won't tell tales out of school mrs bathurst looked annoyed would it be quite wise she asked sharply but deerhurst intervened well he said shall we decide on forty shilling points mr mansfeld do you agree mansfeld who was an intensely reserved and silent man looked up unemotionally i am in your hands he said and following the example already set by clodagh and mrs bathurst he seated himself at the card-table very well forty shilling points deerhurst also seated himself and began to collect the scattered cards but with a swift gesture clodagh leant across the table and placed a detaining hand over his wait she said let's make it eighty shillings a hundred deerhurst raised his eyebrows and the millionaire glanced at her curiously while mrs bathurst made a little affected exclamation of dismay clodagh i couldn't i'm horribly hard up once again clodagh laughed shortly then trust her luck you're more lucky than i am her voice was high and charged with excitement her eyes looked hard and very bright deerhurst's cold glance rested for a moment on her face you really want excitement to-night he asked in a low voice she threw up her head with a reckless movement yes i do want excitement rose will you agree to eighty shilling points mrs bathurst allowed her gaze to flutter prettily from one face to another until it finally rested upon mansfeld's will you decide partner she said in a confiding whisper mansfeld looked at her for an instant in slight embarrassment then he appeared to regain his stolidity of bearing you may play he said decisively and a faint indescribable smile flitted across mrs bathurst's lips as she sank back into her chair 
it was nearly two hours before the steady progress of their play was interrupted by any remark not directly connected with the game. Then, at the conclusion of the second rubber, Clodagh looked across at Deerhurst as if obeying a sudden impulse. "'I bring you bad luck, partner,' she said quickly. Mrs. Bathurst laughed. "'Unlucky at cards, lucky in love. He won't complain, Clodagh.' Deerhurst smiled calmly. "'Is it well to aver that?' he said. "'Look at your own score.' She laughed again, a laugh of complete satisfaction. "'Ah, but I owe that to my partner's play, not to luck. Shall we lower the points, Clodagh? You are a horrible loser.' Clodagh's hot cheeks flushed a deeper red. "'Lower the points? I would rather raise them. But aren't we losing time? Deal, Mr. Mansfeld, please.' Her excitement was obvious. Her lips were obstinately set, and her fingers tapped the table in nervous impatience. A third rubber was begun and finished, then a fourth and a fifth, and very gradually, as the play continued, the sounds throughout the house became fainter and fewer. At first the tones of Lady Diana's voice had floated up from the music-room, and the usual hum of applause had succeeded to be followed in its own turn by more music. Song after song had been sung. Then had come the sound of talk and laughter, as the party from the music-room had adjourned to the garden but slowly these sounds had lessened the laughter had ceased and the entertainment out of doors had died down to the murmuring of two men's voices and the slow pacing of a couple of pairs of feet up and down the terrace beneath the card-room window at last even this had ended with a heavy shutting of a door and save for the occasional distant sound of a closing window silence reigned in the house the sixth rubber was drawing to its close when the door of the card-room opened quietly and Lady Diana entered looking slightly tired and pale. She came forward to the table and stood looking at the players. "'Don't stir,' she said. "'I only came in to see that you are all right. Who has been lucky?' Mrs. Bathurst looked up self-confidently. "'We have, enormously,' she said. "'Mrs. Milbank was most daring and doubled our ordinary stakes.' The results have been wonderful. For us. Indeed. Lady Diana's voice sounded unusually cold, and Clodagh was conscious that her observant eyes had turned upon her. But she played on without looking up. At last the final trick was won, the score reckoned up, and the players rose. Deerhurst pushed back his chair and looked about him speculatively. It feels late, he said. What is the time, Lady Diana? my conscience begins to trouble me. Lady Diana smiled a little conventionally. I think it is about half-past two, she answered. Oh, Lady Diana, how wicked of us! Mrs. Bathurst affected a charming penitence. Mansfield looked genuinely uncomfortable and distressed. We owe you an apology, he said. We have kept you from your rest. But Lady Diana graciously waved all apologies aside. It is nothing, nothing, she assured them, we are not so rustic as all that. Lord Deerhurst, you and Mr. Mansfeld will find George in the smoking-room. She gave the suggestion with her usual hospitable warmth, but the smile that accompanied the words was not the smile she had given to Clodagh the evening before, or that morning at breakfast. And Clodagh, keenly sensitive to this altered bearing, stood silent, offering no apology. At last, as though the tension of the position compelled her to action, she held out her hand in a half-diffident, half-defiant gesture. "'Good-night, Lady Diana. Good-night, Rose. 
Good night, Mr. Mansfeld. Good night. Last of all, her fingers touched Deerhurst, and as his cold hand closed over hers, he bent his head deferentially. Good night, partner. Sleep well. We will be more fortunate in the future. But Clodagh gave no sign that she had even heard. Almost ungraciously, she freed her hand, and without glancing at any of the occupants of the room, moved quickly to the door and passed out into the corridor. Her brain seemed to burn as she mounted the long flight of shallow stairs that led to the bedrooms. Her head ached, her senses felt confused. She had lost money to a far greater extent than she could possibly afford. She had alienated the friend she had so ardently desired to make. She had acted willfully, absurdly, wrongly. She opened the door of her bedroom with hasty, unsteady fingers. The lamp on the writing-table was lighted, but the rest of the room was dim. Through the open windows came a slight breeze that stirred the chintz curtains. In a chair by the dressing-table sat Simonetta in an attitude of weariness. The sight of the woman's tired figure jarred on Clodagh's overstrained nerves. "'You can go, Simonetta,' she said sharply. "'I'll put myself to bed.' Simonetta started up remorsefully. "'Pardon, signora,' she exclaimed. But Clodagh cut her short. "'You can go,' she said. "'Good night.' The woman looked at her for a moment in doubt and reluctance, then, instinctively realizing that argument was useless, moved softly to the door. "'Good night, signora,' she ventured but as Clodagh made no response, she departed silently, closing the door. Left alone, Clodagh moved aimlessly to the center of the room and stood there as if seeking some object which might distract her mind. Her glance passed vaguely over the dressing-table laden with familiar personal objects, then strayed to a couch on which lay an open book that she had made a fruitless attempt to read during the hot hours of the afternoon. At last, attracted by the light of the lamp, it turned to the writing-table on which was placed the heavy leather writing-case that had belonged to her mother, and that had remained with her through all her wanderings since the time of her marriage. It lay unlocked as she had left it the evening before, the contents protruding untidily from under the thick leather flap. Something intimate and friendly in the shabby object appealed to her and attracted her. Without considering the action, she went slowly forward and laid her fingers hesitatingly upon it. All the small records that constituted memory lay side by side in this warm leather case. Her checkbooks, her letters, the few souvenirs her life had provided. She raised the flap lingeringly and lifted out the topmost papers. First to her hand came a bundle of Lawrence Ashland's monthly reports from Morristown boyish, spirited records of trivial doings, ill-constructed from a literary point of view, shrewdly humorous in their own peculiar way. These she tossed aside as things of small account, and turned almost hurriedly to the papers that lay immediately beneath. They proved to be her sister's letters, dating from the time of their parting in London when Nance had been sent to school. For a space she held them in her hand, while a curious expression half antagonistic, half tender, touched her face. Then, with a little sigh, she laid them down again, without having turned a page. The next object that she drew forth was the fated telegram that, years ago, at the time of Dennis Ashland's accident, had brought the longed-for news that Millbank was on his way to Oristown. She opened it, read it, 
then folded it and replaced it with something of uneasy haste, and again, burying her hand in the recesses of the case, brought to light another link with the past, a large envelope into which were crushed a number of things, among them the first invitation from Lady Frances Hope in Venice, a ribbon that had tied a bouquet of flowers on the dining-room table at the Abadi restaurant, a Venetian theatre program, a couple of dry roses that she had worn on the night when Gore had taken her home from the Palazzo Ugaccini. Very slowly she drew these trophies forth. Each breathed the romance of things gone by, yet each possessed the poison of present regret. As she lifted up the roses her expression became suddenly pained and resentful, and with a fierce impulse she crushed the dry brown leaves between her fingers, flung them from her across the room, and hurriedly lifted the next object from the writing-case. This last was a large bundle of papers tied together with a black ribbon. Lifting it into the light she looked at it for a long time without attempting to untie the string. It was the collection of her father's scanty correspondence and ill-assorted business letters which she had bound together the night before her marriage and had never since opened. A curious feeling assailed her now as she looked at these yellowing papers eloquent of dead days, and at the morning ribbon significant of emotions keen and bitter in the living but buried now under the weight of newer things. How strange, how distant and impersonal the pages seemed! and yet the time had been when every written line had played its part in some human, personal endeavor. Each document had represented loss or gain to some individual, each letter had conveyed its fragment of earthly sentiment. Moved suddenly by the suggestions of the moment, she untied the string. A faint dry odor rose from the loosened papers, the intangible scent that indicates the past. It seemed that some world, distant and forgotten, had suddenly put forth a shadowy hand pointing she knew not whither. Over her brain, fevered from the night's excitement, fell a stillness, an arresting calm. Across her thoughts, distorted by mistaken struggles, glided a memory, a picture. She saw herself as she had been, before her marriage, in the far-off isolated days when life had been a simple thing, when the world outside Oristown had been a golden realm lying beyond the sunset. How young she had been then, how extraordinarily, indescribably young, how untrampled in her actions and sweeping in her judgments. As the old existence pressed about her in a cloud of images, she opened the first letter, but so unsteadily, so agitatedly that in the opening five or six of the pages slipped from the packet and fluttered to the writing-table, bringing with them a small unframed ivory miniature that had been wrapped within the sheets. The thin, fragile picture dropped with a faint tinkling sound. Clodagh bent forward to recover it, then paused, leaning over the table in an attitude of attention. The miniature lay face upwards, and in the strong light of the lamp its outline and colors shone forth distinctly. It represented the head and shoulders of a man in a scarlet coat and hunting stock, a man of thirty with a handsome, defiant face, fine eyes and an obstinate, unreliable mouth. It lay looking up into her face while she stared back at it as though a ghost had risen from the faded letters. On the night before her marriage she had come upon this miniature of Dennis Ashland, and in a frenzy of renewed grief had thrust it out of sight amongst the papers she had collected. 
Then the picture had seemed pitifully sad in its presentment of the dead man in the days of his strength. Now, as she looked upon it in the light of subsequent knowledge, it seemed a thing instinct with portent and dread. Sharply and cruelly the glamour cast by death receded from her memory. She saw Ashland as she had seen him in life, selfish, obstinate, and yet weak. And quick as the vision came, another followed, the vision of herself, of her own attitude towards her existence and her responsibilities. In silent, intent concentration she gazed upon the picture until at last, seized by an ungovernable impulse, half-instinctive realization, half-superstitious dread, she caught up the lamp and walked to the dressing-table. There, removing the colored shade, she laid it upon the table, and lifting the mirror looked fixedly at her own reflection intensified by the crude strong light. For several minutes she stood quite motionless, her questioning eyes searching the eyes in the glass, her pale face confronting its own reflection. And as she looked, expressions of doubt, of fear, of conviction chased each other across her features. The image that confronted her was her father's image, softened by differences of age and sex, but fundamentally the same. The image of one who had wasted his life, ignored his duties, squandered the substance of those who were dependent upon him, one whom even his children had learned to despise. And with a sudden sensation of physical faintness she turned from the table. For every folly of Dennis Ashland's there sprang to her mind some corresponding folly in her own more brilliant life. How inefficiently she had worked out of her own destiny, she who long ago had been so rigid in her condemnation of him. In sudden terror she moved unsteadily across the room and stood leaning against the foot of the oak bedstead. Then, all at once, she made a swift, passionate gesture and dropped to her knees. "'Oh, God!' she whispered wildly. "'God, who made me! I am afraid!' End of chapter 8 Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks.com